Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 290. Your faithful hosts are here, Brendan Mullooly and myself, Tom Mullooly. Brendan, a couple of things we need to uh, settle, some things we've seen in the media in the last couple of days I think we need to discuss. Yeah, what's your uh, 2020 price target for the S&P 500? Uh, did you want uh, SPY or SPX? Doesn't matter. I know, it doesn't matter. Get out of here. That's yeah. my response to that question. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because it seems like the first two weeks of January, well, the last week of December and the first two weeks of January every single year, what's your prediction going to be for the upcoming year? Yeah. And important to remember that the reason you see this should be a signal because the places you see it, this is entertainment. Okay. So we, we all like to hear it because... It's fun to hear what we think, uh, you know, smart people are going to say about the future. We just need to take it with a grain of salt. And they, and they can't they can't tell you what the future is going to bring. No, and that's not that's not a knock on them. That's no. that's the truth because literally nobody can do that. So if somebody is telling you that they can they can tell you where the S&P is going to end 2020, you might as well chuck a dart. That's that's how much weight I would put into that. That's really it. Um, so this was all prompted because uh, we saw an article on Bloomberg. Wait, 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 wait. The the best ones are the ones where people say, well, I expect that we're going to have a 12% drop by summer, but then by fall, everything will be recovered. Right. And by the end of the year, we'll be up smartly by 8 or 10%. We're cautiously optimistic and constructive on the future of the market. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm wearing a necktie. Invite me on television. <laughs> All right, enough enough joking around. We saw an article in Bloomberg where they recapped some of the stuff that Jeffrey Gunblack said would happen in 2019. So whether it was very beginning of last year or the end of 2018, a lot of these didn't age well. And Jeff Gunblack, for those who aren't familiar with the name, runs the biggest bond portfolio in the country. Double line. Right. Is, is Jeff Gunblack. This is not to say that we don't think Jeff is smart or that... Uh, he is bad at his job or anything like that. Um, Quite the opposite. Right. So our point here is that this is one of the smarter guys in the fixed income space. And his predictions about 2019 were pretty wrong in some regards. And just just to display like how, how little you know you should put into these these predictions. This is a smart guy. He was wrong. He'd probably be the first to tell you. And I'm not sure that he positioned double line assets according to these these random predictions he threw out on TV one day. I think that's really important to emphasize to the listeners is that that's this is not necessarily when these folks get on TV and they're interviewed and they're asked to make predictions. This doesn't mean that this is how their portfolio, their daytime job. Yeah, I'd love, I'd love to see the sidebar on the TV uh, next to, you know, like they're interviewing them and then the column down the right-hand side maybe would show you like what their actual what portfolio they actually looks own. like. Yeah. Show me what you're doing, not yeah. what you're what you're talking about here. Says he likes Apple, sold Apple yesterday. Right, yeah. yeah I, I would uh, imagine that there would be a lot of uh, inconsistency there. But just, just to rifle through a couple of these things, they asked him uh, about emerging markets for 2019. Uh, he said they looked good. Uh, they underperformed, you know, the rest of the global stocks, U.S. and and other developed nations abroad. Didn't like Europe. Said it was a value trap. Had its best year since 2013. Yeah. Uh, said the dollar would be down. It was basically flat. Right. Uh, and even in his own backyard of of credit, 
uh, he said that it was, you know, a bad time to be in uh, stuff like junk bonds, uh, yeah. high yield bonds, best year for those since 2016. Uh, and and warned about you know potential downgrades in the investment grade fixed income space and uh, again a fine a fine place to be uh, over the course of this year. So, truth be told, there were some real stories over the summer about some corporate bonds uh, that were at risk of being downgraded. Mm-hmm. I think he got that headline right. But but it didn't matter. It didn't. It, it's right. It didn't matter. <laughs> yeah. You know, everybody's concerned about the triple B area of investment right. grade bonds because this is a ballooning space. It's the bottom of the investment grade tier in terms of, uh, you know, ratings. And I've read a lot of, of intelligent commentary on why this this is somewhat concerning, uh, especially if you're using some kind of an index product and not an active manager who can select in this space, what may or may not be uh, worthy of risk. So yeah, I mean, look, it not, it's not like any of this didn't have merit. A lot of the stuff that he said sounded really smart at the time, because if you rewind the clock to the end of 2018, 2019, like, like for instance, like the warning about junk bonds probably seemed pretty smart because sure. the market was down 20%, and that's not necessarily the kind of fixed income you want to own when the market is down 20%, because it's uh, probably down eight or 10 with it. <laughs> right. And on top of that, we still had a Fed who was seriously making plans to continue to raise interest rates. Mm-hmm. Or at least stand tight. 2019, and right. They, and they didn't. They did the opposite. Yeah. They, they uh, cut. Here's the thing that really kind of bothers me, and I'm not picking on Gunlack at all. It just amazes me that these folks that are invited on to the radio shows that we listen to and the TV shows that that a lot of people tune into, I think a lot of people just, it, it gets lost in the sauce. They'll introduce someone and they'll say, this person is the uh, you know investment uh, manager for the largest bond fund in the world. And then they start asking them questions about, what do you think about gold? What do you think about oil? What do you think about the stock market? Wait a minute. This guy, his whole world is bonds. Why are you asking him about gold, oil, stock market? Because their business is entertainment. I think that's an important point, right? That a lot of people overlook because it happened more 20 years ago, less now, but people see some the some of these recognizable names on TV and they pick up the phone and they call us. Mm-hmm. Hey, so and so just said this is going to happen. And I'm like, do you realize like this guy doesn't even, you know, the guy that was interviewed doesn't buy and sell stocks. He doesn't manage a portfolio. He's an economist or this guy works in the bond market, but yet he's asked about stocks. What's up? I mean, look, even if even if they were asking him about something in his lane, so to speak, I mean, they did. In this yeah. example, I would still not put much weight on that because again, like the credit example with with Gundlach, I don't know necessarily how he was positioned in his double line funds. Right. Uh, was he actually bearish on junk bonds to start the year? Like, was was he uh, you know in in quality because he was afraid of of uh, junk? How was he positioned? And yeah, we don't know. Uh, I would I would rather see that than anything else. But even that doesn't speak to what you or I or any individual should be doing with their money. I mean, that's you don't need to have. Just to bring this full circle, since we started with the price target joke, you don't need to have a 2020 S&P 500 price target to, you know, effectively 
allocate your money for, you know, retirement or whatever your goals might be. Like you you don't need to have an opinion on where the S&P finishes finishes this year to do that. And I think that people people forget that. Like you don't you don't need to have a take on that. You do if you want to be a TV guest, and that's why they go on and they sound really great and they have these opinions and they say these things because you don't get invited back if you say, "Hey, I don't know." Even though that's probably their most honest answer. Yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> they tell you Thank you for the interview. We will never be calling you again if you tell them you don't know where where the market's going, even though they all know they're not. They right. they don't. None of them know where the market's going. They're encouraged to make a statement. It's the sizzle that sells. Yeah. Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Along the same lines, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal that you passed along to us about Actually, this was about uh, the manufacturing sector and talking about the different indicators that are used, ISM versus market. And they found that there's really no single reliable indicator out there for the manufacturing sector. We're getting all kinds of different reads. I would, uh, I would expand that to say that there's no single reliable indicator of anything right. ever. But yeah, this one was about uh, the ISM. Uh, which is one of the older measures of the manufacturing sector versus a newer one, which is from IHS Market. Right. Both of these, importantly, I, I think they get quoted all the time. Like ISM uh, people want people to see what hang that's on that number. Yes. they trade off of it. I think it's important to remember uh, first and foremost that this and the the corresponding one from Market are surveys. Right. These are people's opinions. I again, like I'm not necessarily, I'm not necessarily sure that they're doing what they say they do in surveys because people lie in surveys all the time. Yeah. Um, so it's a sentiment gauge. It's a survey data, and right now, these two pieces of information are telling different stories in terms of the manufacturing sector. One is at a you know a low since since the beginning of the recovery back in 2009, and the other one. Uh, looks very uh, very optimistic, and they've been they've been a little bit criss uh, crossed over the last several years too. And they pointed to periods of time where you can now, in hindsight, shocker, in hindsight, you can go back and say, "Wow, you know what? Uh, ISM was the one to follow here." I think I think they were a little bit earlier in, in actually uh, you know predicting, if if you want to even call it that, uh, the recession in 0809. But it would have led you astray over the last several years when you, sh if you followed IHS market, you probably would have been positioned uh, better to participate in uh, some of these better years where we kind of shrugged off light manufacturing data. So, so which one is right? There's also I don't really know. <laughs> and and you're you're right in the sense that you can expand this in so many different ways. I mean, just look at real estate. Just look at non-commercial personal real estate. People hang on. What's the new construction permits number? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that up or down? What about existing home sales? That's an indicator of people's you know, feelings about the economy. They both tell different stories. Mm -hmm. 
And you're right. From time to time, one will be a better indicator than the other. The problem is we don't know until it's already passed. Yes. And and so the the point of this article in the journal was just to say, like, look, we know way less than we think we do in the moment. It's only in hindsight that we can point back and say, ah, ISM nailed this one. Right. Uh, it's It may not be as helpful as you think right here and now in terms of giving you real-time updates on you know, how to, how to react uh, to, to what is purportedly going on in the economy since this is survey data. You know, if somebody's feeling happy that day, they give you a better answer than they did last month. Well, I think also a, uh, another example of this would be, another example of this would be, you know, the payroll numbers. Mm-hmm. So a day or two before the government statistics come out, ADP provides their own survey that's exactly what it is. It's a survey. Mm-hmm. Think you're going to be hiring more people soon? Right. So the the big wait one, a minute. What's the what's the line from uh, Groundhog Day? Think, think it'll <laughs> think it'll be in early spring. <laughs> I'm yeah. predicting March 21st. Right. Yeah. Love that movie. I was I was going to say another example of this is uh, that's been trotted out in recent years as just a display of like political bias was the small business uh, optimism index, which yes. which uh, if by party affiliation just shows like whosoever party was in office, like they got like way more optimistic, like basically overnight as if the economy like transformed because, uh, you know, the baton was passed between Democrat, Republican back to. That's not you know, true. No, it's not. Oh, OK. <laughs> and uh, we and we don't need to go uh, along no, no. that trail. We uh, we've beaten the drum on that on this podcast very often. I think that's. That's an obvious bias that needs to be left at the door when uh, when investing. Uh, hey, there there was another very interesting article that we both saw on Morningstar uh, recently. David Blanchett uh, wrote about this. Yeah, uh, it was called "When Retirement Expectations Meet Reality," and the this uh, was really good. And we'll link to it in the show notes so it, people can take a look at it. Yeah, it took it took a really in depth look at. When advisors and clients uh, want to mutually, you know, assume what the expected retirement date is and and the ramifications that can have on uh, how things really play out. Just at a high level, I thought that the point they they concluded with was that you should plan for an early retirement. And then if you can hit those numbers, if you can hit all the things that need to happen to, uh, you know, let's throw a number on it, retire at 61. Right and you get there and you don't want to retire, well, then it's probably your decision and it, it feels better at that point to say, nah, you know what, I'll, I'll keep working. Or maybe you've hit all the goals and you're like, yeah, let's do it. All of that is okay. What is what is not a great idea is assuming, oh, I'm going to work till 70. That's when problems start. Yeah, because so what they showed is that people who plan on working longer end up being negatively surprised in the sense that they might reach their early 60s and due to a litany of, of potential uh, outcomes, just don't end up working that long. Sure. And then you're you're short, and the amount that you could be short if you were banking on, let's say, working all through your 60s and you get to 61 and you're downsized or, or something like that occurs, you can be dramatically yeah. short. You've just cut uh, the amount of savings that you were going to have, you're going to have eight or nine more years of savings. You were going to have more time for your money to compound before you started looking at it. Uh, you may end up claiming social security earlier, uh, and you're going to have a longer expected retirement. You're going to have a 30 year retirement instead of a 20 year retirement. And all of those 
negatively impact the probability of everything working out. Right. All of them negatively impact it. I'll throw another log on the fire. So we know many cases of people who had to leave work to take care of a sick family member. Yeah. So in addition to no longer working, now you've got medical expenses. Right, stuff that stuff that you know maybe wasn't baked into uh, the degree that that uh, you know it was unpre- something unpredictable. Um, so I think the overarching narrative for me was to just be be generous with your assumptions in, in the sense that you want to give yourself wiggle room uh, for things to go wrong. You wanna you wanna proje- you know project uh, conservatively, and that can mean different things. You project for lower returns. You project for an earlier retirement, and then when you you know, when you can work longer and you want to, great, you're going to be fine. Or you get higher returns, terrific. That is great news. But the reverse, not great news. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was very interesting. I'm kind of backtracking over what you said, but the the folks that intended to retire before age 61, a lot of them went on to work longer, more years, really because they wanted to and they could. And the people, you know, what they mentioned in the article was that the people who plan to retire at 61 usually retired at 61. Mm -hmm. But this other group that we've been talking about that say, I'm going to retire at 65 or I'm going to retire, I'm never going to retire or whatever. They actually came up with, it's not an, an exact mathematical formula, but basically it was something like, if you figure, hey, I'm 62, I've got eight more years, the reality was, in most cases, that turned out to be four, yeah. four years. Right. And so you, ne- you didn't make it until you were 70, because as some of the reasons Brendan mentioned, you got squeezed out of a job, you had an illness, uh, something happened. And so instead of working till 70, from age 62, you worked a couple more years till 65 or 66, and... I just think of the quality of life too. Like if you plan to retire earlier and then you reach that point and you hit your goals and you can retire, but you choose not to, the mindset that you're going to take to work and then bring oh, home is going to be so totally relaxed different. because yeah. it, it ultimately doesn't matter. Right. At that point, you're doing it for the love of it or because you want to keep busy. It's not, I have, I have to have this job for another four or five years. Like the stress of that is is much greater than knowing. Hey, you know what? If something happens, it happens, and I'm I'm going to be fine. I don't I don't need to work for another seven or eight years to make sure I'll be okay. We'll definitely link to that in the show notes, and that's going to wrap up episode two ninety. Brendan, we're almost at three hundred. Pretty good. It's amazing. We'll have to think of something special for. Uh, oh, we'll get party hats so everybody can see us. Yeah. Oh, it's a podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening to episode two ninety, and we will catch up with you on the next episode.